Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Out front next, the breaking news, U.S. airstrikes in the Middle East tonight. U.S. fighter jets right now striking parts of Yemen with Tomahawk missiles. We are waiting to hear directly from President Biden as the entire Middle East and the world right now are on edge. And more breaking news tonight, Trump's tirade, a judge shutting the former president down after an outburst at his fraud trial in New York. Could this be the beginning of the end for Trump's business empire? And Christie's hot mic moment that everyone's been talking about. We have the man who is on the other end, who was speaking to Christie on that mic. What else did he say? Was it really an accident? Let's go out front. And good evening. I'm Aaron Burnett. And we do begin out front tonight with the breaking news. The United States striking the Middle East this hour. A U.S. official telling CNN that right now the U.S. military is carrying out strikes with fighter jets and Tomahawk missiles on Yemen. Their target, Iranian-backed militia Houthis. And these strikes come after an emergency cabinet meeting in the United Kingdom, America's closest ally. Uh, To be clear, these strikes in the Middle East are very significant. The United States is now finally taking action, and it could change the Israel-Hamas war into something much bigger. The Houthis have been relentlessly attacking ships in the Red Sea since November. Reports today of another attack, the 27th by the group, in the area under two months, according to the Pentagon. Now, the Houthis are already vowing to retaliate to any strikes. A senior member moments ago saying, and I quote, we will confront America, make it kneel down and burn its battleships and all its bases, and everyone who cooperates with it, no matter the cost. And as we said, a very significant moment here, the United States launching multiple strikes in Yemen tonight. So much to get to with this breaking development. I want to start with MJ Lee out front live outside the White House. And MJ, a tense situation tonight. It is, of course, the darkest hours of the night uh, just coming uh, before dawn in Yemen and now a series of strikes. What are you learning? Yeah, Aaron, we are certainly waiting for that official word from the White House on these attacks in Yemen uh, against these Houthi positions. But a U.S. official telling me and confirming uh, that this isn't just the U.S. military, but these are actions that are being taken uh, with other countries, including uh, the U.K. Uh, What we should make clear is that U.S. officials have telecast in recent days very clearly uh, that the situation in the Red Sea had become intolerable and unacceptable. And in recent days, uh, U.S. officials had gone as far to say that they were issuing their final warnings uh, to the Houthi. So it was certainly expected uh, that in the coming days, given that the Houthi provocations and the attacks had continued on these shipping vessels in the Red Sea, that some kind of a different response could be coming again from the U.S. uh, and its allies. Now, uh, striking in Yemen is something that the U.S. had hoped that it could very much avoid. This was almost a last resort situation, given that the U.S. is so uh, set on trying to prevent uh, the situation in the Middle 
police from uh, escalating. They also just do not want to disturb uh, the current truce in the Yemen civil war. Uh, but again, I think it's very much expected, given the gravity of the situation and the significance of this action by the U.S. and others, uh, that we should be hearing in some form from the president directly uh, later this evening, Aaron. All right. Thank you very much, MJ Lee. And you heard MJ say in some form we should hear from the president later this evening. Uh, it is a grave and deeply serious moment and a significant development here. Uh, and as MJ said, indications allies uh, involved. I mentioned that emergency cabinet meeting uh, in the darkness of night in London, uh, Rishi Sunak holding. And we do understand now that the UK was part of these strikes. Oren Lieberman joins me now from the Pentagon. And Oren, uh, you're learning uh, about the UK involvement. What more are you learning about these strikes tonight? We've just learned quite a bit from a U.S. official about the types of targets that were struck here by the U.S. And we've now just learned the U.K. We have also learned that the U.S. strikes came from a variety of different platforms, including, as we've said, fighter jets and Tomahawk missiles, which are land attack missiles launched from the sea. But it's not just surface vessels. It was also submarines that were used in part of this attack, mm. targeting 12 or more than 12, I, I should say, different sites in Yemen belonging to the Houthis. Those targets included radar sites, as well as storage and launch sites for ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, and UAVs. That's significant because it's those three types of weapons that the Houthis have used to target international shipping in the Red Sea, obviously one of the world's most critical waterways. So the U.S. and the U.K. very much trying to send a message here that this needs to stop. We have seen, according to the U.S., 27 times where uh, the Houthis have launched attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. At first, they were trying to target ships that had some sort of connection to Israel, either coming or going from or part ownership. But according to the U.S. Navy's <clears throat> Fifth Fleet, which operates in the region, many of the last dozen attacks had no connection at all to Israel. The U.S. feeling compelled because of the threats to international shipping to set up Operation Prosperity Guardian and protect shipping in the Red Sea. But that was purely defensive. This obviously goes well beyond that. After multiple warnings to both the Houthis and to Iran, the Houthis, of course, an Iranian proxy, that these attacks had to stop, the U.S. and the U.K. feeling compelled to take action here. So again, more than a dozen targets struck, including radar systems, as well as uh, storage and launch platforms and sites for ballistic missiles, uh, cruise missiles, and UAVs. And the U.S. using not just fighter jets, but also surface ships and submarines to carry out what appears to be a broad array of strikes on Houthi targets in Yemen. Aaron. All right, a broad assault. Oren, thank you very much. Uh, and, and always important to note, 90% of the world's trade goes by ship. Uh, and in, these attacks have gone unanswered now for three months until this uh, mass assault, this broad assault that we're talking about happening at this hour. Barack Ravid is our political and global affairs analyst and retired U.S. Army Major General James Spider Marks also joins me. So, General, here we are. Finally, 27 strikes uh, on, on shipping, uh, many of the U.S. ships targeted. The U.S. now tonight responding, hitting more than a dozen Houthi targets uh, in Yemen. The Houthis, of course, an Iranian-backed uh, militia, uh, Iranian proxy. Uh, and coming from the air, coming from under the sea, coming from uh, ships on the sea. Your reaction? I think it's well overdue. The, the timing of this is important. The United States has previously been very, very precise in its attack against the Houthis. It's kind of been a tit-for-tat. This is an escalation and I think that's appropriate. It's not an expansion. Look, there's proportionality, you know, legal requirements that I think this would exceed, certainly at a minimum, would meet those prescriptions for proportionality. And you have to go after, as Oren has just reported, both the archers as well as the arrows in military terms. Go after the inventory, 
go after the capabilities, huh. go after the leadership, go after the launch capabilities as well. That's what we're seeing right now. And important, the message needs to be there's no sanctuary for the Houthis where, where they are in Yemen. The only sanctuary that exists is with, within the border of Iran. Nobody's going to conduct operations across the border into Iran. But the Houthis need to understand unacceptable. This needs to be a crushing blow. Well, that's the, cru- the crucial question, Brock. Uh, is it a crushing blow? Obviously, there's a statement being made in the fact that there's an emergency cabinet meeting in the UK and the UK is involved and it's more than a dozen targets and it's coming from three different sources. There's a statement being made there. Uh, but how will it be received? Well, it's definitely not a crushing blow. Uh, it's a beginning. It's a first step. Uh, you don't uh, crush uh, a, a strong militia like the Houthis with uh, airstrikes on 10 targets around the country. Uh, They have a robust military infrastructure all over the countries with vast military capabilities, uh, and they're going to respond. It's pretty clear. They said that they're going to respond. They will do it. And now the question is, how far will they go? Will they just attack U.S. US vessels in the Red Sea, or are they going to start attacking U.S. forces in the region? And General, that's the, that's the question here. So the statement from the senior member of the Houthis tonight, and this statement came just before we learned the strikes were launched. So there was anticipation that it was going to happen. You know, we knew about the cabinet meeting. We knew it was imminent. Uh, and then they happened. The quote, we will confront America, make it kneel down and burn its battleships and all its bases and everyone who cooperates with it, no matter the cost. Now, of course, there's some bellicosity within that. But what are they really capable of doing? Yeah, as you said, look, we're not surprised by any of that type of narrative that they would release. What we're seeing right now needs to be the first step in what must become a much larger type of engagement with the Houthis, or we're going to be here forever putting up with this. The planning that goes into these type of operations gets into what's known as an action, reaction, counteraction type scenario. So the United States and its allies that are participating have obviously gone through this. I don't see this as a potential snowballing out of control or the United States and the UK wouldn't be there. There has to be able to be a very precise, as I've described, an initial crushing blow against the Houthis. And if they go after, and they've already indicated that they're gonna go after US forces. Yes. And there are other proxies that have gone after US forces. So that's a given. We have to be able to put a lid on that. Uh, we all, the, the, the comment was made a moment ago, right, that there wouldn't be a strike within Iran. Barack, but that is the real question here, right? How will Iran back, uh, react, right? The Houthis are an Iranian proxy. They are Iranian-backed. And here we are. Yes, first, they're definitely an Iranian proxy. They're definitely Iranian-backed. But it's, um, it's not clear that they are 100% Iranian-controlled, meaning it's not like uh, an on-off switch that the Iranians can just tell them, okay, now you start shooting and now you stop shooting. Yeah. It's more complicated than that. And you have to add to that that for the Iranians, that's the best-case scenario, that the Houthis and the U.S. will uh, have those skirmishes now and the Iranians will sit on the sidelines and uh, as if they have nothing to do with it. And obviously, the U.S. tried in recent days to send messages to Iran uh, to stop the Houthis. It didn't happen. Uh, And uh, I'm not sure the U.S. is ready at the moment to go after uh, Iran in order to stop this. All right. Please stay with me, both of you. I want to bring in Jason Crow, the Democratic congressman, former Army Ranger, 
who served in both Iraq and Afghanistan and sits on the Foreign Affairs Committee. So, Congressman, uh, here we are tonight. Uh, these are the first real strikes uh, from the United States and the U.K., we understand, against this Iranian-backed militia. What more are you learning about these strikes tonight? Hi, Aaron. Well, we're paying close attention to this on Capitol Hill. There's really three things going on here. The first is the president has the authority and the responsibility to protect U.S. service members and U.S. facilities in the Middle East. There have been well over 130 attacks on U.S. service members and facilities in the last few months throughout the Middle East, uh, from the Houthis, from Iranian-backed militias and proxies. Uh, and we just can't sit back and let those attacks come wave after wave. Uh, we have to make sure that we're reaching out, that we're hitting uh, those forces and uh, those weapon systems that are putting our personnel at great risk. That appears to be what this attack was about, is a defensive attack, but is reaching in uh, to attack those forces before they attack us. That's number one. Number two is making sure that we don't let this escalate into a broader conflict, so that it's, it's proportional, <clears throat> that it's controlled, that we're looking very closely at what Iran is doing, and we're not uh, creating an escalation here. Uh, number three is Congress's role, making sure that this is a self-defense attack, that we're not being pulled into a broader conflict. I would not support uh, us being pulled into a broader conflict against the Houthis. We, we should not be doing that. Uh, we just ended uh, our nation's longest war. We should not be pull it, pulled into another one. So we have an obligation in the weeks ahead to conduct oversight on Capitol Hill. You know, on the one hand, uh, the, the Biden administration has been criticized for its tepid response, its lack of response to Houthi attacks, repeated attacks, more than 25 of them, right? 27, I believe, uh, on shipping interests. Uh, on the other hand, you have the uh, one of the chief uh, operators in, of the Houthis saying we will confront America, make it kneel down and burn its battleships uh, tonight as that statement coming out. Do you, Congressman, take that seriously? Do you think they have the ability to do any sort of an action that would cause this to escalate into something significantly bigger? Well, I don't take seriously those who are mounting criticism saying that we should strike back, that we should be more aggressive, nor do I take those folks seriously. Uh, on the other side, the terrorists and the Houthis that are saber rattling and saying things that they don't have the capability to do. The simple fact of the matter is these are challenging things. That's why you have clear-eyed, smart, intelligence, national security professionals of the administration, making sure that we are smart, that we have a proportionate response, that we are defending ourselves, but we're not escalating either. Uh, and that takes calculation, that takes uh, intelligence, that takes the ability to look at the various streams of intelligence and risk that we are facing, and that mm -hmm. we're responding in a proportional way. Uh, so that's what they're doing. Uh, I have a great confidence in this, this administration to do that in the, the right and, and reasonable way. And, and, and have you gotten any briefing for them or understanding about where this is? You hear more than a dozen targets. Is that your understanding of that's it? And then you see what they do and then there's going to be more? Or what's your understanding about where we are in this? Well, I sit on the House Intelligence Committee, and the, the House Intelligence Committee is briefed regularly on the conflict in the Middle East, uh, the, the threat from Iranian proxies, Iranian militias, Houthi militias, uh, and everything going on uh, in Gaza as well. So we, we pay very close attention to this. These strikes, of course, just happened, so we haven't been briefed on the specifics of these strikes, but I expect that we will be in the days ahead. All right. Well, I appreciate your time, Congressman. Thank you very much. Uh, and as we try to get more information about exactly what is happening here uh, with these significant strikes within Yemen by the United States and the UK, Oren Lieberman has uh, some more breaking details here that you're learning. What do you know now, Oren? Aaron, we're learning more about how this strike was carried out. I told you just a few minutes ago that it was 
U.S. fighter jets, as well as surface ships and a submarine that carried out these strikes. We have learned more about the submarine. It is the USS Florida, a ballistic missile submarine capable of carrying out and firing Tomahawk missiles as well. Those are land attack missiles, and that, according to a U.S. official, is what was used in this attack. What's noteworthy here is that, first, the U.S. rarely talks about where its subs are. They are a very closely held secret, so anytime there's a public statement about them, it is a significant statement. And this is the sub that U.S. Central Command announced had entered the Red Sea from the Suez Canal in early November. So we now have learned that this is the submarine that has been there operating in the Red Sea, perhaps not all of this time, but that was a part of this strike using the Tomahawk missiles that's capable of launching as the U.S. carried out a strike along with the U.K. on uh, more than a dozen or so targets in Yemen. So interesting that now, too, we learn about the operations of a U.S. submarine as it relates to this very significant moment and this significant attack, Aaron. Oren, thank you very much. And Barack Ravid, Major General Spider Marks are back with me uh, in this significant moment with a significant attack, as Oren describes it, General. We've now learned that the USS Florida, uh, that that is the sub that was responsible for launching some of these tomahawks. When you hear that and them releasing this information, sharing this information, saying the name of the vessel, what do you take away from it? Well, attack subs, you have different manner of submarines. You've got boomers, those that are going to launch your ICBMs, your nuke capability. The Navy's never going to let you know where those babies are. The attack submarines, on the other hand, make themselves known. This is a very specific announcement by the Department of Defense saying we have capabilities. Look at what they can do. Very precise attack. And we're going to do some very significant bomb damage assessment in terms of what the, you know, what the damage was against the target. Was there any collateral damage as a result of that? And they'll alter their attack platform accordingly. This makes perfect sense when you look at all the, the array of capabilities that the DOD has available. They will use everything in their kit bag to make sure this happens. And Barack, what's your understanding about the length of lead time they would have had to plan the time of this. And I say that in the context of we know the U.K. is involved. We know there was a, a cabinet meeting, emergency all cabinet meeting uh, a few hours ago in London, uh, led by the prime minister Sunak. Uh, but that this was done in coordination. Right. There were so many targets. What's your understanding about what went into it in terms of planning and how long they knew that they were going to do this at this time on this day? I think this uh, strike was planned for at least two to three weeks. Um, I think the White House was very hesitant uh, when the Pentagon first uh, brought the initial plans for uh, a re a military retaliation to what the Houthis uh, have been have been doing since uh, mid-November. And uh, U.S. officials told me in recent days that what was important to the White House was first to try and mobilize some sort of an international coalition so that it won't be seen as the U.S. going at it alone or even the U.S. and the U.K. And behind the U.S. and U.K. strike are at least uh, two dozen other countries that are involved in this task force in the Red Sea yes. and that signed the this statement warning the Houthis. Uh, so I think... Uh, uh, this was the main point, to, to start this airstrike after you have some sort of international support for it. And we also saw mm -hmm. the Security Council resolution just yesterday condemning the Houthis, calling them to stop uh, those missile strikes. And now we saw those uh, uh, airstrikes. And one interesting thing that I hear now from Israeli officials 
uh, is that they got uh, an early notice from the U.S. Uh, about this uh, operation in Yemen, and now they are preparing for some sort of a retaliation from Yemen yes. against Israel, not only against uh, U.S. forces in the region. And Barack, you just said uh, two or three times there in that sentence a word we haven't said so far, but is at the core of all of this in general. That's Israel, right? Uh, th- this is this is all happening because of the. Uh, conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. And yet uh, you had America and the UK striking an Iranian-backed group in Yemen. And the response of that group is, we will confront America, make it kneel down and burn its battleships. Is anyone right to be concerned with the fact that this seems to just have become something now? uh, Brock, I'll get you back in a second. But General, that this is really has turned into being about the United States. Well, we shouldn't be surprised by any of this. Look, the United States has got a capability, and they're going to use that capability to go after terrorist organizations that have made their intentions very, very clear. Nor should we be surprised by any declaration by the Houthis or by Iran, which means Israel now is at greater risk. I mean, this isn't a black swan event. This is a white swan swimming in a pond of white swans. This is totally predictable. This needs to be done, and we understand the cost. Barack, I want to play for you uh, some video that we just have in of one of these strikes. This isn't, uh, well, we're going to get it in a moment. I'll explain what it is. and we get it, I'll play it. But uh, we do have video uh, coming in of a strike, uh, Barack, north of Sana, of course, uh, the capital of the Sana, Yemen, uh, in the Sana province. So we're going to show that as soon as we get it. Uh, but that will show, uh, here it is. So you go ahead and, and, and watch this, Barack, show that we actually have video of these. Obviously, this is taken from the ground because you can hear the dogs. Multiple plumes of smoke and fires. Uh, looks like it's being shot on a, you know, basically like on an iPhone uh, up and down. That's in Sana province. Brock, uh, take a look at this and... Tell me what you see. Again, I want to emphasize this isn't coming from the U.K. or the U.S., uh, you know, in the actual strike. This is coming from the ground. You hear someone speaking in Arabic and uh, and you hear the dogs. Yeah, I, I think what we'll have to see is uh, how this looks in the morning, uh, meaning uh, when the sun comes up, uh, mm-hmm. we'll be able to see exactly what was hit, how big is the damage, and we'll also know if there are any casualties among the Houthis. Um, Just last week, um, the U.S. helicopters fired at uh, some uh, small boats that the Houthis sent to try and uh, kidnap uh, a a commercial ship. Ten Houthi rebels uh, were killed. Uh, And the the interesting question to me is whether the U.S. uh, did this airstrikes on targets that had Uh, Houthi uh, militants in them, or it was just empty targets that uh, only had uh, weapon caches or uh, missile positions. And I think this is a big, big question because this will determine what will be the Houthi response to this. General Marks, what do you see in this uh, video that we have uh, taken from the ground in the distance looking at it's hard to say, right? It's multiple plumes of fire. Looks like multiple explosions lighting up the sky. But what do right. you see when you watch this? Yeah, to, to Barack's comment, um, those are that looks like these are secondary explosions. That's significant. Frankly, if there aren't any Houthi fighters 
co-located with where those ammunition depots might be or some of their capabilities might be located. I'm okay with that. Let's get rid of all of their inventory so that they have a much diluted capacity to do what they've been doing. Let's go after their helicopters so that they can't raid the ships that are in the that are cruising in, through the Red Sea. Let's go after their ability to launch over the horizon, their drones, their ballistic missiles, their cruise missiles. Let's get rid of all of those. And then you end up with a formation of Houthis with no capability, no kit to do anything that they want to try to do. This is a long process. We can't view this as a video game. We don't turn it on and there are no consequences and then it's over when right. we want it to be over. This is the matter of diligence and presence. That's what the U.S. Navy, that's what the Air Force, that's what, I mean, that's what our services do. We shouldn't be surprised that this directed attack took place probably in a very truncated amount of time. That's what our Navy does. That's what we ask them to do. Uh, Oren is with me back from the Pentagon. And Oren, as we are looking at this first video that we have of strikes, these are north of Sana in Yemen. What more can you tell us about this? Well, it certainly looks like these are the results of the U.S. airstrikes. We know from U.S. officials now that the U.S. targeted, along with the U.K., more than a dozen sites. It's difficult looking and knowing exactly what this is, although we, we've now learned from U.S. officials what the U.S. was targeting. That includes weapons inventories. It appears there may be secondary, secondary explosions there. Yes. You can see, obviously, one explosion, but also the, like the flash bulbs almost going off of what appear to be other explosions, in which case that's an indication that the U.S. may have well hit their targets in going after stockpiles of weapons. And the weapons listed are those that the Houthis have used to target international shipping. And that's been the point of this. Not to defeat the Houthis, not to start a war with the Houthis, but to send a much stronger kinetic message with force that the attacks on international shipping uh, either will stop or these attacks were a possibility and in the future remain a possibility. So given the reports of explosions we have seen coming out of Yemen, again, these are just social media reports, but given the number of reports we have seen, yep. it wouldn't surprise me if we see more of these videos coming out, giving us a better sense of the scale and scope of the U.S. and U.K. operation here and perhaps other countries participating as well. Right. We And, and, and important what you say there. We don't know uh, other countries at this point, if and if so, who. And we also don't know, at least as far as I understand, or correct me if I'm wrong, the exact number of targets. We know more than a dozen, but that 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 that's the, the, the description at this point. I, I just want to follow up with you on, on, on a couple points and also with uh, Barack and the general. But you talk about the specificity of these strikes, and it looks like those could be secondary explosions indicating that they had hit some sort of weapons uh, depot or something along those lines, Orrin. How good is the U.S. intel? When you're striking more than a dozen precise targets, it would indicate it is very good. Is that right? Do they feel that they really know where every single thing is there? Certainly, we'll get a better sense of that if and when we get briefed by uh, senior administration officials, and then hopefully at some point U.S. Central Command to understand how they knew what they were going for, how long they'd been monitoring it. The U.S. has known this is a potential flashpoint. It's also worth noting that because this is a multinational operation, the U.S., U.K., and, and perhaps others, there is the potential of sharing intel, and that shores up what you're able to know and gives as many sort of input feeds into the intel picture as you can get. The U.S. is obviously worked sort of both on and off with the Saudis as they had a years-long war with the Houthis. So there is a there is certainly knowledge of the capabilities that the Houthis have, yes. and that perhaps gave them a picture of where exactly the Houthis have it to know where to strike. Obviously, the U.S. has all sorts of other ways of gathering intelligence from satellite to signals intelligence 
So these are all feeding into the picture here. Yeah. And then in the course of the next hours and days, we'll get a better sense of, of what they hit, what they didn't hit, perhaps. Of course, Intel is imperfect and it has holes in it and gaps in it. So we'll get yeah. a better picture of that. But these are all <clears throat> questions as we see the first videos of these explosions here. And, and as we're watching this, when you talk about we'll find out what they did hit and what they didn't hit, uh, Barack Ravid, let me ask you about that because you had indicated that even if we're talking about more than a dozen strikes, and, and I understand that that is not as precise as many viewers may want to hear. It's not as precise as we want. We want more information, but that's what we have right now. Um, that that would, uh, you didn't use the word tip of the iceberg, but you did seem to indicate that that's, that's, that's a little bit, that there's a lot. Can you contextualize this as everyone tries oh. to understand this war? This is a significant strike. It's a significant step. But as it, as it could escalate, how much more is there? Yeah, I think there's much more. Again, the Houthis are a well-equipped, well-trained uh, uh, militia. Uh, they have, I think, uh, equipment that uh, only several uh, non-state actors around the world have. Maybe the, 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 the other actor is Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, both of them are supported and backed uh, by Iran. And But Aaron, just... I think just an update, an interesting update, because President Biden just issued a statement uh, about uh, uh, this airstrike. And he says there's something uh, interesting that while the U.S. and the U.K. were the ones who actually conducted the strike, the, they had uh, uh, support of uh, several kinds of support from Australia, Bahrain, Canada and the Netherlands. Uh, something that we did not know uh, until now. And President Biden says in his statement that the main goal of those airstrikes were to try and uh, end this uh, threat by the Houthi rebels to a freedom of navigation in the Red Sea. General, um, try and end uh, seems to be at hopeful at best. Right. I mean, it appears very clear that's not what this is. This is actually, uh, while right. it is the first response, it is the beginning of the next step. This is an attrition of their capabilities. That, that's what the president is saying. This is a long-term engagement. There are a couple of things to keep in mind, and Orrin mentioned uh, one of them in particular, and that is that intelligence is not perfect. We will find out that there will be some damage that was absolutely spot on, and there will be others. There will be misses in this attack, which means that you're going to be there for a while. And the second part is that we do have a coalition of the willing. We do have other partners, as Barack has indicated. That's important. And not every one of those needs to be a shooter. Look, when you have operations like this, you have folks that have to support, they have to watch your back, they got to make sure that nobody's trying to conduct these little small patrol boats that are going to try to ram or, or go after the main shooters. So the fact that the UK and the US probably conducted these strikes, the other players, the other participants had a significant and important role, but they may not have have brought the damage against the um, the shore targets that the Houthis have. And, and Oren, what do you understand in terms of how broad this may be? Uh, going off of what Barack just said, uh, Barack mentioned Australia and, and others uh, as, as some sort of a coalition, to use the word. We expected there were other countries involved, and we're now seeing effectively the White House confirm that and say it wasn't just the U.S. and the U.K. here. There was international backing, and that was very much something the U.S. was looking for, and you can see it not just in this operation. The U.N. Security Council resolution condemning the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea, that's part of this as well. It gives international legitimacy to the need to protect international shipping, and if the threat continues, to respond to that threat. And that's what the U.S. is trying to do here. 
not start a war with the Houthis, but try to send a message that these attacks have to stop. It's a message not just directed at the Houthis, but also one directed at Iran, as we see them seize another vessel uh, earlier today, according to both the U.S. and Iranian media. It is that threat to commercial shipping that has been one of the big goals here because it's such a a critical waterway, the U.S. was looking for, and as we learn now, got international backing for how critical of a threat this was, backing this action tonight by the U.S. and the U.K. General, you've talked about how obviously there are threats to uh, to burn battleships and destroy, uh, burn U.S. bases. Uh, Express that as a bit of hyperbole. And certainly we've seen, obviously, them launch missiles at ships, right, that have been repelled by U.S. air defense. But have we seen their full capability in the context of what we know and what Barack is speaking of, that they have the capability that, uh, that they and perhaps only Hezbollah have as non-state actors? Yeah, they have some tremendous capabilities. So we, we've seen those. What we're not going to see is what I would describe as any form of, op- that's a terrorist organization. We're not going to see any operational art at play here. We're not going to see some synchronized type of operations. What we're going to see is terrorist activity, pinpoint targeting. They're going to go after the morale of those nations and those corporations. Aaron, if you've already indicated, you know, 90 plus percent of the, the world's commerce goes through the, passes through the Suez into the Red Sea. So the message that the Houthis want to get across with these kinds of pinpoint attacks, very consistent, they're not going to give up on it, unless, of course, this is successful, is those organizations are going to say, I'm going to go elsewhere, which means the co- well, you're going to bear the cost of my rerouting my distribution requirements. So the Houthis have demonstrated what they're up to, but there is not going to be a magnificent change in terms of their capabilities. We're not yeah. going to have the images that we have right now of what we see in Gaza. And Oren, uh, as, as we look at this video, and there's gonna be more, we understand here from uh, the official posting on Twitter, which is uh, where, where some of this plays out, uh, that there were raids in four places, uh, in, uh, at least this is what they're saying, uh, one of which we're looking at right here, in Sada, in Yemen, uh, north of Sana, uh, Sana itself, Odea Governor, and Damar. So when, when you, you think about uh, Yemen itself and, and where, we now understand these strikes were at least coming up from the Houthi side where they're saying they were struck. What does that say to you? Well, first, it speaks to the level of planning that went into this. This wasn't, let, let's compare it to Iraq and Syria when the U.S. carries out a strike there. That's normally one target or just a couple of targets. This was on a much broader scale than that, which requires a level of coordination, especially when you're doing this with an ally and with other partners backing you up. This isn't something you can plan on your own. You can try to plan it quickly, but that, of course, all takes time. Knowing where your targets are, knowing what kind of assets you have to use, then coordinating that between different assets launching your your attack, and that is uh, fighter jets, surface vessels, as well as submarines, and uh, using an ally to attack in that as well. There is a, a tremendous level of coordination required to carry out a strike like this and having the confidence to do that, and, and perhaps we'll get a better sense of how much planning went into this, how much monitoring, but, but that's a key part of this here, the level of preparation, the level of, of integration, frankly, that was required to carry out a, a wide-scale operation on, on multiple targets like this. It is not a strike against all of the Houthis. It is specifically intended to try to limit their ability to threaten international shipping. 
But of course, yeah. now we see how the Houthis respond here and, and where this goes. The Houthis promising very much to respond to any American action. All right. Well, the White House breaking its silence now uh, with a formal uh, statement updating. Uh, MJ Lee is at the White House. And MJ, what are you learning? Yeah, Aaron, we've gotten that official confirmation from uh, President Biden himself uh, confirming these airstrikes on uh, Houthi-controlled areas in Yemen. Uh, he says, uh, as a part of this lengthy statement, uh, that at my direction, U.S. military forces, together with the United Kingdom and with support from a number of other countries, he names Australia, Bahrain, uh, Canada, and the Netherlands, uh, successfully conducted strikes against a number of targets uh, in Yemen used by Houthi rebels to endanger freedom of navigation in one of the world's most vital waterways. Uh, the statement uh, goes on to say uh, and list some of the ways in which the president says these attacks by the Houthis have endangered U.S. personnel, uh, civilian mariners and other partners, jeopardized trade and threatened freedom of navigation. Uh, uh, the end of this statement that we just got from the president is also worth highlighting uh, because he talks about the potential for future action from the U.S. and uh, other allied nations. He says the these targeted strikes are a clear message that the United States and our partners will not tolerate attacks on our personnel or allow hostile actors to imperil freedom of navigation in one of the world's most critical commercial routes. He says, I will not hesitate to direct further measures to protect our people and the free flow of, inter of international commerce uh, as yeah. necessary. Uh, Aaron, as we've talked about, about and in a lot of ways, uh, this kind of action, though we didn't know again uh, until in real time, until the attacks had happened, uh, that these attacks uh, had been led by the U.S. and the U.K., uh, targeting Houthi assets uh, in Yemen. In so many ways, U.S. officials had been warning publicly that the Houthis essentially were not going to get uh, another warning. And what we can report is that after uh, the spate of attacks that we saw on Tuesday, that sort of served as the final warning uh, and the final straw for President Biden, who yeah. greenlit his team to go ahead and go into uh, preparing for these airstrikes that we are seeing on our screen uh, right now. But again, those preparations in many ways have been underway for a while now, given uh, for how long, for how many weeks these Houthi attacks have been ongoing in the Red Sea, Aaron. All right, uh, MJ, thank you. And, and General Marks, just as MJ is going through the broader uh, list here of who's in this coalition, Canada, the Netherlands, the UK, Australia, uh, Bahrain. Bahrain, obviously the home of the Fifth Fleet. Um, and yet, in the context of this and where this came from, of course, which originated uh, with the October 7th attacks and then the Israeli response and the war in Gaza, the, the Hamas-Israeli war, you don't see the UAE or Saudi on that list. Um, of course, you see Bahrain, uh, home of the U.S. Fifth Fleet. But what do you make of this list of countries and who is and who is not on it, especially in that region? Well, the fact that Bahrain's on it, I mean, that's a good sign. And before they agreed to join this coalition in some capacity, and it's not described what that looks like, right. I would guarantee you it it probably includes a level of intelligence sharing. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, they have a capability that allows them pro to provide what I would call port security, kind of literal security. So they increased their force protection posture in terms of 
what the Aussies have done and the Canadians have done. Um, it's important that they join primarily because those are incredibly strong allies. They've been with the United States has been with them. They've been with the United States. And oh, by the way, they've got a vested interest in that part of the world. Um, it's not surprising at all. Um, we haven't heard anything about the French participation. We haven't heard anything about other NATO types of nations that are participating. Um, I don't I don't know that we would see any other nations step up. I think what you're seeing is yeah. that coalition came together pretty quickly. They have done some damage. It will be determined what that looks like. And we'll see what the next steps are going forward, which means this thing could morph. This could be an amoeba. It could grow a little bit in terms of what this coalition looks like and what their contributions are going forward. Uh, it's significant, though, Barack, who is on it and who is not on it. Uh, you, you, you see Bahrain on yes. it, uh, the significance there. You also see who isn't uh, and who isn't are, are, are obviously uh, state actors in the Middle East who view Houthi, Houthis as, uh, as their enemies as well. So what do you take away from that? So uh, first, I think the two main players that you do not see here is Saudi Arabia and the UAE, That's each right. of them for a different reason. Uh, for an opposite reason, actually. The Saudis have been negotiating with the Houthis some sort of a peace plan to end the war in Yemen and to end. And, you know, there was a very long truce, more than a year of a truce between Saudi Arabia and the Houthis. And the Saudis want to continue that. They don't want to throw that into the trash. This is why they're not part of this. The Emiratis is the other way around. Because the Emiratis, uh, when the Houthis started uh, firing at Israel and firing at ships in the Red Sea, the Emiratis told the U.S., we told you so. Why? Because in uh, January 2022, uh, the Houthis attacked Abu Dhabi uh, several times with uh, ballistic missiles. And then the U.S. had a very uh, delayed uh, and what the Emiratis saw as weak response. And now the Emiratis are telling to the U.S., you see, we told you so. We're not going to be, you are not going to join you now. But, but. After this strike now, I think maybe we'll see the Emiratis joining in the second phase, if there will be a second phase, now that they saw that the U.S. is serious about this. And, and uh, Barack, what complications, though, play into this when the Houthis are going to say their reason for this is Israeli massacre of Palestinian civilians in Gaza, right? That, that's what they're going to say. Yeah, well, they've been saying this from day one. Uh, and, uh, you know, at the beginning, that when they started firing at ships uh, in the Bab el-Mendeb, uh, in the Red Sea, in the crossing there, uh, it was ships that had some sort of a, an even vague affiliation with Israel. But then they just started firing at any ship, even if it had nothing to do with Israel. And I think that that have shown to everybody that, you know, Gaza was just an excuse uh, for the Houthis and that there's m a much bigger picture here. And, you know, let's, if we can talk for a few seconds about this big picture, you know, the war in Gaza is between Israel and Hamas. Hamas is backed by Iran. Uh, we see tensions between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon. Hezbollah is backed by Iran. We saw uh, a rocket fire from Syria towards Israel by pro-Iranian uh, militias, and we have the Houthis who are also backed by Iran. There's a common denominator here, yes. and this common denominator here right now sits in Tehran, eats popcorn, and enjoying the show. And and uh, I want to bring in Jeremy Diamond, who is live in Tel Aviv for us tonight. Uh, of course, uh, 
uh, the, the heart and center of all of this and, and why we are here uh, with these strikes tonight. So, Jeremy, what are you learning uh, about the Israeli response and I guess what their readiness is? Uh, I don't understand that from uh, Oren's reporting that they were given a heads up. I'm sorry, Barack's reporting that they were given a heads up, that they were aware that this was going to happen. But nonetheless, this, of course, puts Tel Aviv where you are directly in the crosshairs yet again uh, for the Houthis. Yeah, well, I think it was clear as the Secretary of State was here in Tel Aviv uh, just yesterday that uh, as he delivered a very stark and stern warning to the Houthis, perhaps even more than a, uh, than a warning, uh, perhaps even a preview of what was sure to come, uh, it was clear that this was in the works over the last two days after the Houthis uh, launched that very significant uh, barrage uh, of uh, missiles and drones at those, uh, that shipping lane uh, in the Red Sea, uh, prompting the United States and Britain to intercept nearly two dozen of those projectiles aimed there. I think it has been clear over the since those attacks happened and in the wake of the warnings from the Secretary of State that there was going to be some kind of a significant U.S. response. And I suspect that that response was something that the Secretary of State discussed uh, with his Israeli counterparts, with other counterparts in the region uh, during his trip. I, I think it is uh, important to underscore the fact that the Secretary of State started off this trip to uh, the region uh, hoping to try and tamp down, to try and avoid an escalation of this war. Uh, but instead, what we are seeing right after he returns to Washington fo following this multi-country trip throughout the region aimed at trying to prevent this Israel-Hamas war from escalating into a broader regional conflict, we are indeed seeing this conflict uh, broaden. Now, uh, what the Secretary of State said and the point that that he made was that if the U.S. responded, if there was some kind of a more forceful a, a military response from the United States, that that would be aimed at trying to avoid uh, a broader regional conflict. The rationale there being that strength and force from the United States uh, sending a clear message to the Houthis and to Iran as well uh, in the U.S.'s view, would be the only way to actually prevent this from escalating into a full-on regional war. Right, and of course, uh, the fear of that and, and something even broader on everyone's minds tonight as we watch uh, these developments and see videos like the one on our screen uh, coming in from Yemen uh, on the heels of those mass U.S. strikes. All right, we're going to continue with our breaking news coverage after this. The U.S. striking, as we understand, more than a dozen targets across Yemen and tensions, of course, across the Middle East now at an all-time high. Also breaking, Trump's attorneys told to control their client after he went on a tirade during his New York fraud trial today. Trump's business empire tonight hanging in the balance. We are waiting for word from the judge. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years, and even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently: ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. We are continuing to follow the breaking news out of the Middle East, where the United States is striking more than a dozen Iranian-backed militant targets across Yemen. According to officials, those targets include radar systems, drone storage, launch sites, as well as ballistic and cruise missile storage and launch sites. In a statement, President Biden has just said the attacks are in direct response to the unprecedented Houthi attacks against international ships in the Red Sea. Biden warning there could be more strikes. The Houthis have been relentlessly attacking ships in the Red Sea since November, uh, on the heels, of course, of the beginning of the Israel-Hamas war. And there are reports of another attack, uh, uh, the 27th by the group in the area, in under two months, according to the Pentagon, uh, just in the past day. So we're going to continue to monitor the breaking news out of Yemen. We're starting to get video of some of these explosions and strikes, bring you developments as they come in, and the world has a chance to react. It is, of course, just before dawn uh, in the Middle East where these strikes happened. And I want to get to the other breaking news we are following as we await more details on that story, and that is the judge in Trump's New York civil fraud trial shutting down the former president late today, telling Trump's attorneys to get a hold of Trump after he went on a tirade about his long list of grievances. He went on and attacked the attorney general, Letitia James of New York, saying she hates him and is using him to get elected. He went after the judge, accusing Arthur Engeron of having his own agenda, and he demanded that New York pay him damages for what he's had to go through. Now, his rant was cut short in the courtroom, but that did not stop him from doing what he ultimately had planned to do in the first place, which was go out of the courtroom to the cameras uh, for a political speech after he got outside. The anger. She's got serious Trump derangement syndrome. There's no question about Letitia James, the corrupt attorney general of New York. And when I say that's what he planned to do, I mean, you see the flags behind him, right, trying to look as if He's the president. Uh, that was he was prepared to do that. The judge, of course, has already ruled Trump was liable for fraud and inflated his wealth by billions and is now merrily deciding whether Trump should be forced to pay nearly three hundred seventy million dollars, which is the amount the New York attorney general has been seeking. Paula Reed is out front live outside the courthouse in New York. So, Paula, I mean, as all this went down, I mean, obviously, Trump afterwards planned to go in front of those flags and make a statement. But in the courtroom, the judge had said Trump couldn't speak uh, if he wasn't going to respect the court's parameters. And he spoke anyway. Uh, Was it effective? Uh, No, Erin, it's very unlikely to be legally effective to attack the judge who is currently contemplating the possibility of hundreds of millions of dollars in penalties in addition to other charges. But as you know, this is as much about the personal and the political as it is about the legal. And that's part of why we heard from Trump four times today. He spoke to reporters on his way in. He addressed the court. He spoke to reporters on his way out and then had that press conference. That's notable because it's a real contrast to what we saw on Tuesday when Trump showed up to federal court. We didn't see him at all. He pulled into a garage. There are no reporters to talk to. He certainly didn't participate in the proceedings. But today, he appeared to seize on every opportunity to amplify his message that he is the target 
of political persecution. He managed to get a lot of attention and traction, and it's likely we will see him adopt this playbook going forward. His next opportunity to do something like this will be next week. In the next phase of the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, now I covered the first E. Jean Carroll defamation trial. Trump did not participate in that at all, which is why it was notable today during his press conference that he said he, he intends to show up next week just a few blocks from where I'm standing for the next phase of that case. It appears he is once again going to try to participate in the proceedings or seize on the media attention to amplify his political message. And that may work for him politically, but legally, we could soon see the consequences as the judge overseeing the civil case says he expects to issue his decision by the end of the month. All right, Paula, thank you very much outside that courtroom. And of course, she'll be covering that next trial as well, as will Eric Larson, a Bloomberg News legal reporter who's covered Trump's trials and business extensively. I know, Eric, you were in the courtroom today. Jimmy Gangel is with us, CNN special correspondent, and Ryan Goodman, the former special counsel at the Department uh, Department of Defense. I'm sorry. It's been a it's been an hour. Eric, um, okay, so you were there. Trump yep. makes a statement in court. He had been told he couldn't talk, and then he gets up and tries to anyway, is admonished, has to sit down. What was the moment like inside the courtroom when he's sitting there trying to I think everyone those? I think everyone was pretty surprised because there had been this email exchange between the judge and his lawyers that was uh, made public the day before where they had clearly been negotiating for Trump to be able to give this statement and the judge flat out refused because he wouldn't agree to these guardrails for what he could say just typical rules about what you can say during a closing argument like this and he just refused to agree to it so it was pretty surprising when the judge even at the last moment gave him one more opportunity he's like do you agree to this and he Instead of answering, he just started talking. I think what was most surprising, though, is that the judge let him speak for several minutes before finally shutting him down. Uh, the judge has not shied away from uh, cutting Trump off before, so it was a little surprising that he let him speak for several minutes. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I have to say, Ryan, like, they negotiate your lawyers, and then your lawyers actually have no power and no influence and mean nothing. It's just going to stand up and do whatever you want. I mean, what are the implications of that, especially when you come to a situation where the judge has already ruled uh, the guilt? It's a matter of the penalties. Yeah, it's not in uh, Trump's own self-interest, at least in terms of if he cares about how this is going to turn out in the New York courts uh, to do something like this. And it's a clear signal to the judge that he's not being controlled by his lawyers. So the judge is trying to say to Trump's own lawyers, like, control your client in some sense. Yeah, he says, Mr. Kais, control your client yeah. when Trump is going on. Yeah, yeah and that's for your client's own self-interest to control your client. And I think that's just a really bad situation to be in. It's, very, it's almost like the last thing you'd want to do against lawyers' advice at the closing argument when they're trying to make the final summation of their case. And, and who knows whether he lost his temper, he just wanted that moment, Jamie. But obviously he was prepared for the other moments. I mean, his flags are up. Right. He's ready to come out and, and, and you know, pretend and, you know, say he's the president and give his statement. Did he get what he wanted? I, I think that he did. Look, no question that Donald Trump is also using this as a political platform, as a campaign platform. And there's been a lot of talk about, you know, is he missing out with these cases about traveling? I would say he's getting both done very effectively. Hmm. He doesn't have to travel, which he doesn't much like to do. We know he doesn't like to sleep away from home. Right. It costs a lot of money to campaign. And remember those rallies with 10,000, 12,000 people. He is sitting on the courthouse steps campaigning, not literally on the courthouse steps, but, right. but figuratively, and he doesn't have to spend money. He doesn't have to fill the seats. He's getting the message out. What did we hear over and over again? Witch hunt, election interference, 
he has a big platform and he's campaigning. He's deciding it's better to spend his time there than in Iowa uh, because they see it. Everybody sees no it. No question. So, so Eric, you know, but the thing is, is there could be a huge cost to him for this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that- $370 million. Right, exactly. <laughs> I think in addition to the campaign, um, this does, it is a very serious case for him. And as lawyers have said, they've told me that the reason he's been attending this trial, even when he doesn't have to, um, is because he finds it a huge threat to his business. Of course, it's a lot of money. Like you said, it's threatening his control of his entire company. They want to ban him from the real estate industry in New York for life. Um, so it could be a huge defeat for him if the judge rules against him completely. And I think that he sees the risk to his business. That's how he built his reputation was with his business. And to have a crushing defeat that could be coming here, I think he wants to find some way around it. He, he did express some hope today at that press conference that maybe the judge would uh, potentially rule in his favor, at least on some of the claims. And so, and again, guilt and innocence has already been ruled. So that when you talk about that, I mean, you're talking well, about the damages. Well, there's still six other claims in the case that still have to be decided. Plus, in terms of guilt or innocence, uh, right? Insurance yeah. fraud, conspiracy. A, a lot of it relates to uh, whether or not there was intent um, to defraud. So the fraud claim is the biggest claim, and yes, he ruled against them before the trial on that. But there are still six other claims, and a lot of that relates to whether or not he, he actually misled the banks intentionally. Okay, and so that's significant. What? Where do you see that? And and how does his behavior, his conduct, or does it play into how the judge rules there? At some level, I think some of his statements even today play into it in a way because um, he comes across a bit as a fabulist. You know, he's saying in the courtroom, all of my properties are perfect and beyond compare and are, you know, worth even more than I said they were. <laughs> so right, it's right, like, right, I, right. I lie about how much they're worth. Tripling down, yeah. Yeah, and that's what is a big part of this. Like, what is his credibility as a witness? What is his credibility in making these kinds of statements? Because these are the kinds of statements in which he's inflating his wealth for ulterior purposes. That's kind of the heart of the case. The ulterior purposes in the instance of the case is to get lower interest loans or get loans at all from the banks. So at the end of the day, that really is part of the case, and that's what the, that's what the judge is going to have to rule. How much of this did, in a certain sense, he get away with because it's to disgorge him of $370 million to take away unjust enrichment from I mean, these kinds of things. You would assume he'd have to pay enough where he could still say that he was persecuted and witch-hunted and all those things. <laughs> right. But nonetheless, it is an interesting window into how much he cares, Jamie, that he actually is, as Eric indicates, still having some sort of hope or hoping this doesn't go against him. Because okay. this is real. This, no question, this one is personal in a weird way different from all of the other cases because it's about the money. It's about the business. It's about the brand. And this hits home. But I think what we saw here today, you and I have covered Donald Trump for a long time. This was classic Donald Trump in a certain way. He fights, he spins, he delays. And even when he loses, which on one count he already has, he says he's won. But no question, this one's personal. Deeply, deeply personal. Deep, yeah. and, and the money, I mean, his entire brand, isn't it? Pick me because I'm a businessman, right. I'm a billionaire, right? right. It, it goes to the heart of absolutely everything he says he is. When do you think we'll know? Uh, well, the judge says that he'll rule uh, probably by the end of the month. Um, and then the question yeah. is, it's going to be appealed. The appeals might take years. Why is it always that that's the case? <laughs> I always come to Ryan hoping, and then I see the look in his eye, and I know it's years. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all so very much. Uh, we appreciate your time and all of yours as our coverage uh, of the breaking news out of the Middle East uh, and the U.S. strikes continues with AC360. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.